It's Earth Day. This from the LA Times' David Horsey. Donald Trump's legislative agenda may be a confused mess, but his administration's attack on the environment is operating with the focus and zeal of the Spanish Inquisition. This from the New Yorker's Elizabeth Colbert. The list of steps the Trump administration has already taken to make America polluted again is so long that fully cataloging them here would be impossible. Attacks on clean power, clean water, radiation protection, OMG on the you and me this is real level? What does this climate change pushback mean? Coming up on this edition of The Janice Adams Show, we'll ask environmental activist Pamela Boyce-Sims. Trying to make it real compared to what... First, the news. Pamela Boyce-Sims is an evolutionary culture designer who convenes the Mid-Atlantic Transition Hub, MATH, a six-state network of environmental activists. She's a veteran of local, regional, and national resilience building with the Transition Environment Movement and currently works with international Quaker, Buddhist, and African diaspora earth care networks. Pamela builds social transformation movements from the inside out and from hyper-local to supranational levels. Her current focus is on food sovereignty and water access that extends from village grassroots work with local partners throughout the African diaspora to convening a Quaker-led earth care coalition of environmental organizations at the UN. Welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Pamela, at this time, with all that's going on, from Flint, Michigan, to Standing Rock, people trying to stand their ground. Here we are talking about food, access to water in the United States. What's going on? Climate change is going on. The earth is in travail. We are going, we are part and parcel of that, that process. And with all that's going on, we need to look, look at and focus on basics. As resource depletion gets worse and worse, as we see droughts and we see floods and we see entire coastlines that are subsiding, meaning the, the, the land is sinking. Actually, entire nations, island nations are sinking. We need to be thinking about what we can do what we can do in community, what we can do joyously, what we can hold hands together and do to really grapple with the reality of accelerated climate change at this point. A couple of weeks ago here in the Northeast, we had just mountains of snow. Outside my door was four, four feet of snow. And then in one day, the temperature climbed to 60. The following day, it was 70. And now it's back in the 30s. Is that what's going on? I mean, people, you know, people always go into denial. When you have snow, they say, okay, all right, look, climate change, here we have snow. All the snow is out here. But in the end of February of all months, we have four feet of snow to 70 degrees. We can look at this point anywhere in the world and you look out your window, whatever climate you live in, and you can see in your own life at this point how climate change is operational. We have some areas that are dealing with droughts that have been prolonged much, much longer than has ever been the case before. Storms are arriving that are supposed to be 100-year storms, 50-year storms. They're ha happening every two years. They're happening with more intensity. Aquifers are drying up. Land, as I mentioned, land is subsiding. Uh, we have along the eastern coast, we have Norfolk, Virginia. We have uh, Wilmington, Wilmington, Delaware, which is below sea level at this point. We, ha we have um, the entire peninsula of Florida. We have flooding that used to be occasional flooding that is now incessant flooding. Um, the seasons have, the growing seasons have changed. Farmers 
are trying to adapt to weather patterns that they've never actually seen before seen before we have glaciers that are melting if you look at i'm if taking it a little bit further out extrapolating from the united states la, la paz bolivia at this point their glaciers are gone and they literally are now rationing water and they are getting water every three days sometimes for a couple of hours this is not something that is we're projecting into the future look anywhere in the world and whatever the climate, it is the accelerated shifting of patterns is affecting all of us. We've had tornadoes in Saugerties, New York, a couple of, yes. I believe it was last week. We're not in Kansas anymore, it's Dorothy. A- absolutely. What is happening is extremely atypical. And even if you don't want to label it something, there are changes afoot to which we will need to adapt the earth is going through a process. The labeling and the names of what we choose to call it really are irrelevant. We're going to have to adjust lifestyles to a new way of working with the planet. We talk about climate, and that brings up the political climate and the political will to do what it is that you're talking about doing. I mean, you're giving us indications of things that are they're fact. They're out there. You can see it. You know what's happening. But we've had a lot of pushback so that we are being groomed to think of this as, quote, controversial. Is it controversial? That's a loaded word. Uh, I come from an environmental tradition that is all about local resilience building, which which means that rather than try to allocate a lot of time and energy to politicians or government structures or people that are going to be gone in four years anyway or people that are not going to listen to you regardless of what you say. We literally step out of that arena and we build alternatives to systems that we don't see working. If fossil fuels have, fossil fuels have peaked, the production is declining the the extraction methods are more expensive and more intensive and more invasive and more polluting than has ever been the case before because all of the easily accessible oil is in decline we are going to so if we try to actually project into the future we need to be thinking about alternatives to that as opposed to railing against a bunch of folks who really are not hearing you. So controversial only in the sense that if you really are wedded to the concept of trying to get political, the, generate the political will, which really isn't a good allocation of time, as opposed to in your local community, mapping out how resilient your community is in this moment. What would it take to be self-sufficient or nearing that? and resilient for the population in your community? What is the differential between where you are now and where you have to go? And as groups of friends and neighbors that come together around kitchen tables and and figure out how to do things themselves, move your little burg, village, hamlet, town toward resilience and devote your energy there where you have more control if you need your chicken coops, you can go to your town council and you can get your chicken coops in there. You can And you're, you're zoning to actually facilitate your local resilience as opposed to dealing with what you're saying is controversial. It's only controversial if you have to deal with people who are simply not listening to you. And you're beating your head bloody against a wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so here we are. In your work, you are, you speak about this, but you also train. So In that training mode, let's start at the beginning. We've come to a meeting with you. Where would you start training us right now, those of us listening to you? You mentioned when we started that uh, we build movements from the inside out. The training begins with a shift in consciousness, recognizing that the way the economic system in which we are embroiled at this point is moving is unsustainable. We are 
taught to consume, 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 to basically build the engine of the economy, and we, be, we are surfeited in stuff, product, that we have been taught to want. We're taught what, what, where to live, how to, how to look, what to buy, all of these things that create a lifestyle that is a consumer lifestyle. We have been commodified. And we are uh, basically trained to be cogs in a wheel of an economy that, that uses our buying power, and we are objectified. So the, the training begins with seeing yourself as an autonomous, capable person who deserves quality relationships, deserves uh, to be able to maintain quality lifestyle, even as climate change dials up by simplifying. It is an interesting point, but we have to also ask the question, when your stuff is my job, how do I do what you're suggesting that we do? We do it locally. We withdraw locally. You're, You're talking about the, when you, you mentioned culture design, culture design has to do with the recognition that all of these problems that we're dealing with, whether it's the environment, whether it's the economy, whether it's jobs, et cetera, et cetera, it's all intertwined. We cannot deal with these problems in siloed ways. And the only way to, uh, to, to reckon with that is to think systemically, and the, uh, the smallest system is the local node. So rather than tackle the fact that what I do, the, the connection between the job, the job and what you're trying to, trying to shift at the macro level, just make certain that you think locally. Well, I'm thinking at, at the most micro level, if your stuff is my job, then I don't even have the wherewithal financially in the real world, financially, to say let me talk to my town council about building a chicken coop because I don't have the money to afford the chicken coop. So that's what I'm asking. How That's the first transition that I'm wondering how we get over because that's the internal resistance that so many people feel. When I say internal, what I'm talking about is the, what allows you to completely disconnect from that, from that kind of systemic thinking. Um, it is understanding that there's a way of life where my food doesn't have to come from from 5,000 miles away. It doesn't have to be trucked to me. Um, And I can do for myself what I can do. I can can grow my own own food if I need to. I can relocalize as much production as I can. And as town by town, village by village starts to do this, we shift the, the system will, will when there is no demand, the, sh- the system will shift to make so certain. So basically, it- we're not just talking about stuff, because I raised the question when your stuff is my mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. We're really then talking about this existence, food, water, when you talk about localization. We're going to be at the point where we're, those kinds of basics are going to be the point of focus. If there is a, food, a disruption, a climate disruption, the grid down, what have you, what any kind of thing. We saw with Irene, we saw the Hurricane Irene, we saw with Sandy, we saw with Lee. And as I mentioned earlier, these storms will be coming more frequently. It doesn't take much to disrupt our system. Each town, village, hamlet, or New York City with 8 million people has three days food supply for the entire population. How are we going to Would wrap up? Would you say a- that again? <laughs> we have, as Americans, because our food comes from all over the place, it's shipped, trucked, flown from everywhere. We have three days food supply for an, for entire populations in most cities, all, all major cities, but most 
cities, towns, and hamlets throughout the United States, which means when I say relocalization, I'm, ta- I'm talking about taking command and control of that situation and as friends and neighbors figuring out how to, make, how to be much less vulnerable than that. And that means stepping away from the system thinking, which means that you're stepping away from a whole way of being, thinking, acting, etc. When we come back, we're going to ask Pamela Boy Sims how. With our guest, Pamela Boyce Sims, an environmental activist. She helps organizations identify and map out points where we can make tactical interventions in how we adapt to climate change. Uniquely, she also creates Afrocentric food production solutions, survival models for the most vulnerable people among us worldwide. Pamela, right before the break, you gave us the jaw-dropping, provocative, gut-level, get-real-people noticed that should something happen in a metropolis like New York City, there is only three days' food supply on average in most major cities. How do we get out of this mess? Well, there are major movements at the macro level that are actually have taken note of that, and people are on the case there. Uh, movements, urban gardens, community gardens, rooftop gardens, hydroponics, all of these things in city areas, people are recognizing that working in the soil isn't just healing and wonderful, but it's actually at some point going to be necessary. Even we, we do a lot of work in the cities with container gardening, um, all kinds of wall gardening that you can, mm-hmm. that you can do you can do in your home, so that you. It's real, as I mentioned, it's a mindset shift to take command and control of your own situation hand in hand with neighbors. So I want to make certain that when we're talking about three day supply of, 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 to be able to sustain a population in a city, that this doesn't have to be a big gloom and doom uh, fact. If you're working together, you're thinking it through with a small group of people, and we always we always suggest that you you coalesce friends, neighbors that have have gotten to the same point you are realizing realizing this, map out what your what assets your city has in terms of do you ha- what community gardens are in your area where is food coming from what farmers what uh, what food is coming into the city from uh, in farmers market lo- farmers market local local produce that could be brought in so you get to know the farmers that ring your village or your town or your city or hamlet and be- build relationships with those farmers take some time to actually go outside of the city and see what rings i'm thinking uh, New York City in the Mid Hudson Valley, or the lower the lower Hudson Valley, for example. Mm-hmm. That's when you see farmers markets in 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 in, in Sty, Sty Town, the Lower East Side. Yes, that those guys in, are coming from the Mid Hudson Valley. In in fact, uh, here at WJFF, we we have local farmers who do um, they do show and sell come the season every week in Brooklyn and Manhattan. Absolutely, absolutely, it's making. Building relationships, connecting with those folks. There are, there are farmers, I know in the Mid-Hudson Valley, that actually invite people to come do work days or work weekends on the, on the farm. There's mm-hmm. all, all kinds of agro-tourism kinds of things yes. as, well, as well. So it's getting through the eye of the climate change needle is going to always be about relationships. 
This relationship and connectivity that you're talking about, it brings to mind the concept when people created reservoirs. And the reservoirs for New York City are actually upstate New York. That's As, why New York City has the best water ever because it's upstate New York water. So yeah. is is that um, part of the part of that mindset to understand? Then the city may not be totally self sufficient, but the pipeline is such. Part of the resilience building, is, when I say mapping, is to know, to your point, where your water is coming from, where your food is coming from. If you can establish connections between the farmers, the sources of what you're using, and then as much as you can, try to localize that mm -hmm. so that if the next Irene or Sandy hits, you're not completely clueless about how to feed, your, feed yourself. You've actually been building this uh, network around yourself, a support system around yourself, and it's not just you hunkering down doing this yourself. Hoarding and hoarding and, and no, no, bending we, everybody th else those off. Those words saying, we don't use. <laughs> yes, but I mean, that is, some people, that's their mentality. When, when they hear about shortage, they hear about me, mine, I got to hoard this and nobody else can have it and I have locks on my cabinet. You are talking about the diametric opposite to that precisely, kind of thinking. Precisely. Which the, is really survival Absolutely. I'm think I'm what I'm suggesting is the antithesis. And that's why I was talking about the internal process. It's literally Americans or anybody becoming aware of the fact that we are all interconnected. And what's happening to the planet, what's happening in climate change will not be livable and sustainable unless we honor those connections and we understand that we have to do this in groups, collaborative to, collaboratively, collectively, which is why I immediately went to, where's your food coming? Know the farmer, connect with the farmer, but actually go to the farm, figure out where everything is coming from and try to not uh, patronize food that is coming from 5,000 miles away, 1,000 miles away, make certain that you're buying local and knowing what's going going into your mouth, so you're so you're not buying uh, things that are toxic for you. It's, there's a whole cascade of possibility, but it's a shift in mindset from I'm going to hunker down. This is me, mine. To we're only going to get through the eye of the climate change needle together in community. Everybody bringing their gifts, their talents, their knowledge and awareness to the table. Let me ask a very practical question. Do we have the infrastructure to be able to do this right now? I mentioned the analogy of the reservoir. Um, that takes an infrastructure. Do we have that? Think hyper, hyper local. Go to the, the closest person that has been through a permaculture design course. We can, we, they're, they're permaculture design perma course. <laughs> or, or, or just people, people what who know. What is a permaculture design permaculture, course? Permaculture or agroecology or for people of color, Afro-agroecology are those are the movements I was talking about that are looking at how to get away from massive, big ag, monoculture, fields and fields of the same thing planted to plant food the way we used to plant it, all um, so, so that it takes takes into consideration the the land the mm -hmm. ecosystem that you're putting it into. And I bring this up when you're talking about infrastructure because rain gardens, swales, cisterns, rain barrels, mm -hmm. all of these things, again, hyper, hyper local, can literally give you more control over the water that you have than, than you've ever had before when you're thinking about the water comes from a faucet, from a sewer system, or for the city water system, even people that have wells. If you actually use land such that you're, you have water catchment systems, again, you are taking command and control yourself over sustenance for your family, your neighbors, etc. We're in the Northeast. How do we get food in the winter if we don't truck it in? 
I, I invite you to think of Ma and Pa on Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> How did Ma and Pa eat in, in, in those, those snowy, snowy winters? They had root cellars wherever they... It, and we go back... It's literally dialing back to the time when mom and grandma knew how to can, knew how to put up preserves. Everything that was grown was there for you in the winter, and it was even better for you, as good for you because it was fermented, good for the GI tract because she knew how to how to pickle things and those types of things. We we really have to shift our mind to get into things, back into things. Processes we never should have lost, like root cellars and canning and uh, putting up preserves and all of those, all of those good things. It, it's only a, only a couple of generations back. We don't have to go back to the Lombards. But those few generations back may not have had the megacities that we have like now with the 8 million people. So that kind of scenario, how do you bring that to the city? We, we're, we're, we're shifting back and forth to two different two different environments. What is a, what is possible mm-hmm. in uh, exurbs, suburbs, uh, uh, rural areas is very different than what is going to be possible in cities. However, there there are workarounds in cities. Um, every we 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 work with community centers. We work with churches. Very many of them have big into big industrial kitchens. They're feeding church populations. That type of thing in in cities. Uh, if people are working in community gardens, for example, and there are ways there are ways to maximize the amount of food, biodynamic gardening, um, uh, uh, hydroponics. Uh, aquaponics, uh, ways of maximizing food production in very, very small city spaces. Um, and then you have, you can aggregate that food in community centers, in church centers, for example. And that brings, that brings out the grandmas that actually all have that kind of knowledge of canning and that type of thing and fermentation to actually use those big kitchens to aggregate a food supply, for example, for two blocks or three blocks or five block radius. It's literally when these groups of people sit around their kitchen table and say, I want to relocalize food production and access to water so that I am not thrown out of my seat by climate change disruption. You think about the asset in your in your town might be that church kitchen, might be two or three community gardens around you, and might be the connection to the farmer who's just outside of the city. And then you do your canning right there in the church, in the church kitchen. There are workarounds. We just have to be resourceful and recognize we're getting to, we are moving into a phase where we'll have to learn to take control ourselves, to do it ourselves and not expect it to show up on a shelf or run when you hear the next door coming to fill up that shopping cart. And it's not going to be workable for much longer that way. Pamela Boyd-Sims, you come from a city environment, as do I. Tell us where you came from and how you got to the place where you are now. Where do you start? Where did your life start? Uh, my family's West Indian, Barbados. I grew up in, in, in northern Jersey. Um, urban, suburban, exurban? Uh, very rural. Rural. I adjacent to actually county county parks and that type of thing so the outdoors nature my dad was uh he used to hunt pheasant he was a fisher fisherman he used to um he was just everything outdoors and our life our life was very much that so i've always been very viscerally connected to an appreciation for the land and and being outside. However, New York City was my playground. So, <laughs> and I've spent a lot of a lot of time uh, living in cities as well. So, the, the juxtap- juxtaposition of the two in this particular subject area is is the two things dwell in my mind. And education. What did you study in school? Uh, I did uh, international affairs at Georgetown, Georgetown University, and then went immediately to Dakar, Senegal, where, again, I was connecting young women to, who would normally have just been peanut farmers their whole lives through US, USAID, uh, the Agency for International Development. I was a local hire. I was, I was living there for five years. I lived there for five years in Senegal, connecting them to education, even as they were doing farming. Um, did a lot of, in, in the southeast and southwest of the United States, uh, 
just prior to that, did a lot of community organizing around the child care food program, child care, child care nutrition, working in communities throughout New Mexico, Texas, um, and throughout, throughout the south, southeast as well. Uh, but I did not come to an environmental movement until I'm, – I'm a Buddhist Quaker, which is kind of a bizarre converna- conver- con- combination for a person of African descent to be. I'm a Buddhist Quaker. But I, became, I came involved, became involved in environmental movements as a function of living in my monastery, which is a Tibetan Buddhist monastery, it, not, not too far from here in Guard, Guardian Mountain behind the little burg of Woodstock. Uh, in, in Ulster County, and the head of that lineage, which is sister lineage to the Dalai Lama's lineage, lineage the Karmapa, is um, head of the Karmakagyu lineage. He sits in Jauta, which is in Dharamsala in India, in exile, in close proximity to the Dalai Lama, but also in clo- close proximity to the melting glaciers on the Tibetan plateau. So he saw, he can see firsthand the result of glacial melt, and it's melting three times faster on the Tibetan plateau because of the altitude there. So he mandated the Karmapa, the 17th Jalwang Karmapa, mandated every single monastery in this lineage throughout the world, Bhutan, Nepal, Tibet, uh, India, the United States, Europe, the monks and nuns, whoever, and I was in the monastery in Woodstock at that point. The monastery in Woodstock is the North American seat of that lineage. Uh, So all of his monasteries were mandated to do environmental work in the town where they were located. So the monks and nuns were out there doing the recycling and doing gardens and all kinds of things. And also in Nepal, where his monasteries are in Nepal, they're they're earthquake zone. So those monks and nuns are also trained in crisis management and disaster preparedness for climate change uh, situations. So I, where I was in Woodstock, I found an environmental movement that was very grassroots because Buddhism is always about ground up direct connection to source. So that that movement actually was founded by a Buddhist, uh, uh, Rob Hopkins. It's the tra- transition environmental movement, Rob Hopkins in the UK. He's a, he's a, uh, a devotee of the Dalai Lama himself. So you, I could feel, I didn't know this at the time, but I could feel in the DNA of this movement a resonance with my spiritual path. And that's how I personally became involved in environmental work in Woodstock, New York. And when we think about these very serious subjects, I am also want to remember, since you've just mentioned the Dalai Lama, that, of course, he has a new book out with Desmond Tutu called mm. Joy. So ultimately, that's what we're talking about, how to bring us to ourselves and be able to sustain ourselves. When we come back, we'll talk more about that with our guest, Pamela Boyce Sims. Underground and in the sky, animals and birds who live nearby. Have mercy, mercy, all things and what they use to be. What about this overcrowded land? How much more do you from me? Can she stand? Our guest is Pamela Boyce-Sims, and we are talking about her work in the environmental movement. These days, you're working with the UN. What are you doing there? Well, there's a direct connection between the point you just made about joy and... The Dalai Lama's book with Desmond Tutu. Absolutely. 
the the intent here when we look at what's happening with the with climate change and resource depletion etc is really to maintain equanimity and balance and understand that it is the connection the depth of relationship the the beauty of being human together at this particular very tumultuous time that is the goal getting through this climate change process is a tremendous privilege to be here at this time and have that opportunity rather than be overwhelmed or bowled over by what's happening. So there's that that I take directly from Buddhist practice. The art mm-hmm. in Buddhist practice as Buddhist practice as you know the arc is very long. Mm-hmm. So there's there's uh, there's there's no sense of urgency per se. It is what's happening in this moment. Where is the planet? Where are we as humanity on this planet? What's emerging? How can I give 100% of my time best allocated to alleviating suffering on this planet? And that's really the bottom line. There is no um, Regardless of one's one's denomination, or even if one has a denomination, that's the commonality. Yes. That's the intersection. That's the bottom line. Give everything you have in joy, in beautiful relationship, to evolve and be the best you can possibly be in this moment. And uh, if we bear that in mind within the framework of what's happening to the planet, we do not get pulled into the vortex of pain. Also coming from that path is the fact that there we take vows to be of assistance to the most disadvantaged of disadvantaged. Uh, I was drawn to the environmental movement because I saw the, the earth herself, uh, Gaia, the earth herself was in serious travail. So that to me was alleviating suffering at the macro level. Excuse but me, Gaia? Gaia is the Earth as a living, breathing, organ, or evolving organism, just as we are as well. In what it's language? It's a principle of the Earth as living and as a, uh, a consciousness okay. and an evolving being. Um, that, that being said, that was the first impetus for the environmental work, but also devoting oneself to alleviating suffering amongst amongst the most marginal and vulnerable which is how the UN work came in came into place uh, I'm currently working with the African diaspora climate change resource depletion and economic c- contraction will necessarily be disproportionately difficult for that group this of course being the UN declared decade for people of African descent. Yes, the UN International Decade for People of African Descent, 2014 to 2024. So in that framework, uh, the intent is to work with people who are going to be, because they are more vulnerable given historic circumstances and uh, more marginalized given structural racism and all of the other isms that people have been dealing with, whether it is people of African, African descent in the Caribbean, people Afro-Brazilians, people of African descent in Latin America, people, people of African descent in the United States, and throughout, throughout the world. It's about recognizing, uh, I'm, I'm going to invite listeners to, to pull up images, frames of reference of what we saw in, in, after Hurricane Katrina. Who was in the stadium? Who were on the rooftops? Who were left to fend for themselves when everyone else was gone and deal, deal with this without much assistance? Many of whom were homeowners, and people conveniently forget that. They try to blame the victim for the crime, saying, well, you know, if they had gotten jobs or whatever nonsense people want to put out. But these were homeowners who would taken the step to secure their land as best they could, but it was the land on which they were living that had, in its own way, was retreating from them. Yes. As, 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 I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, 
all along the coast, whether it's the Gullah Geechee people off the coast of, of South, South Carolina, as I mentioned, Norfolk, Virginia is subsiding very rapidly. We have the Florida Peninsula, the, the whole Gulf, Gulf area. My, my focus is, is the, the, Mid-Atlant- the Mid-Atlantic region, but, I, but the entire eastern, eastern coast. If we look at, at India, Bangladesh, we have, look all over the world. The people who are most vulnerable are most often people of color. So under the aegis of the International Decade for People of African Descent, what um, I'm working on behalf of Quaker Earth Care Witness, which is the NGO that I represent, the non-governmental organization I represent at ECOSOC, uh, at uh, at the United Nations. And also I've pulled together a number of Buddhist net- networks that have global regional reach to the Soka Gakkai and the um, the foundation uh, that is crisis management all over the world, two global Buddhist organizations and the Quakers, as well as Unitarian Universalists, and a lot of folks that are focused on the African diaspora that are trying to help people hold on to their land and and use land for food production. Again, relocalization of food production. We've brought a coalition of people together who are looking at from, we, we alternate years, 2017 is the year of food production, and we'll go to water issues in 2018 and back to food, we'll alter, alternate years, um, to figure out if we had to feed, there are 200 million people in the African diaspora, 46 million of those people live in the United States. Most of those folks are in the agrarian South, are, are, are focused in the Southeast in the United States and obviously, obviously the cities. But we're looking at being resourceful. The exact um, plan that I kind of I laid out at the beginning of the program, and that is how do we, given the scenes from Katrina, the fact that we're probably going to have to do this ourselves when the when the chips fall where they may and the cards are thrown up in the air, we're looking at food sovereignty as opposed to food security. Sovereignty meaning do it yourself. We're not asking anybody for anything. We are looking at you bouncing ideas off of each other, given land situations which are very or contextualized. For example, for example, Nairobi is very different than Dakar, which is very different than King, Kingston, Jamaica. Hence the localization. Lo, localization. Contextualized locally. But these are people who have been fragmented and atomized and stratified deliberately given slave trade for 450 years. The act of actually coalescing people even to have conversations to bounce these ideas about food production and land grabs and land retention and land acquisition for food production for, uh, uh, off of each other, just coalescing in, in the technology allows for that now, people that have been deliberately, methodically spread like seeds all over the world. But there's a proverb that says they 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 uh, they tried to bury us, but they didn't think we, they didn't know that we were seeds. <laughs> mm, I like that. I like that. Um, in all of this. There is the business of farming. And, of course, uh, one of the first things that President Obama did when he was president was to stop that malicious, malevolent practice by the the, uh, Department of Agriculture of denying black farmers loans that it was customary to give white farmers. What's the state of black farming right now in the United States? Abysmal. The the I think the percentage of of farmers that are black farmers I think it's about two percent at, at this point we after Reconstruction people had land people were promised land mm-hmm. the land was snatched summarily from them or they were indentured back on that same land yes. Uh, and then we move forward to the current periods of time where essentially even people who do have land or did have land that's the that's the underside of that word gentrification or land development is the number of people who've been forced off their land by taxes suddenly being forced up so that they can't afford their land and that's what now pushes them off 
There has been a steady progression of people off the land for many reasons. The uh, the migration the migration north due to extremely difficult circumstances that had to do had to do with uh, ra- racism racism in the south. We have families that wanted to move as far as they possibly could away from the concept of working with the land, which is a re-education process. This diaspora coalition, this Earth Care coalition, is also undertaking to to invite returning generation farmers to understand that the stigma of African-American people or people of African descent working the land because of the, the, the history of slavery needs to fall away. But over those, over those years, there have been many reasons why land has, we, we've, our land has diminished. We have, we're working with, in the UN, uh, the Black Belt Justice Center, the Black Fam- Family Land Trust, the Center for Heirs Property Preservation. These are groups of African-American attorneys that are working with working the USDA system, working the um, the uh, systems that have been eroding the eroding land retention to make certain that we have the land on which to produce food showing people how to retain the land, how to use it properly. So we're trying to swim upstream against the tide you just mentioned. Food production, access to water, backdrop of climate change. It's a lot, but it's something not only that we can do, but we must do for our survival. So if you had three takeaway points for where we each individually listening to this right now start, what would those three points be? Prepare yourself emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually for a new way of living. If we, if we, if you, if we do this now, as opposed to when things, when climate change makes it more dire, we will have a transition that will be a great transition that is much smoother. So prepare yourself first, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. Then relocalize. Think of where everything on your plate tonight came from. And if it came from more than 100 miles from your house, figure out what it would take to actually get what you need to eat. Maybe it may, may not be an avocado that came from XYZ or an orange from some other place, but what if a good meal that came locally? How do you relocalize your food production? And thirdly, Think relationship, think collaboration, think cooperation, think family, friends, neighbors, groups of people, because we need each other to get through the eye of the climate change needle. Moving forward, where do you go next? Well, I'm, I spend a lot of time just up and down the region. I put myself at this, uh, meaning New York State to Virginia. I put myself at the service of people who are trying to figure out how to work together best. Uh, one of my back, I'm also a psychotherapist. <laughs> so this comes in very handy when Americans are not used to working in a long, prolonged periods of time in groups of people on projects for, perpetu- this is for perpetuity. So I, I'm, I'm just at the service of a lot of environmental activists and especially people who are marginalized who need to be talking to each other and learning from each other because they will bear the brunt of climate change. So Put that's that my together for us right now. The psychotherapist part with the um, environmentalist part. And even as I say that, I'm wondering, are those two different things? If you look close enough, Janice, nothing is a different thing. It's all it's all the uni- same unified field. <laughs> um, so there's there's actually a whole field called eco psychology, h- helping people adjust to the fact that we have species extinction and we have all of these uh, different circumstances that are accelerating and we're going to have to adjust. The human it t- it's going to take the human mind and the human spirit. Uh, a great deal of shifting of lenses to be able to cope with this. So eco-psychology and just helping people understand themselves better so there's more balance and equanimity in, in relationship as we move forward. Therapists are needed. <laughs> so it, all, it does all come together. Therapists are needed. We all bring our talents to it. Our guest today, Pamela Boyce-Sims, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
Today on the Janice Adams Show, our guest has been environmental activist and trainer Pamela Boyce-Sims. For more about today's show and links to Pamela's work, please visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, our thanks to our guest and to you for joining us today. I'm Janice Adams. Sit on the oceans and upon our seas, fish full of mercury. Oh, oh, mercy, mercy, me. All things and what they used to do. Radiation underground and in the sky. Animals and birds who live nearby are alive. All things and what they used to be What about this overcrowded land? How much more we use from men? Can't you stand? Mm-hmm.